Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy. I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you? We've been surrounded by smoke here all day, but other than that, not bad. How are you doing? Everything is good. We're joined by two very special guests today. Uh, we are joined by Jonathan Ryder and Patrick Tan. They are the CEO and the general counsel, respectively, of Chain Argos. How are you two gentlemen? We're good. Thanks for having us on the show. It's an exciting morning in the news, as always. Yeah, it's lovely to have you two on, especially given exactly what you're talking about, the news today. Let's just dive right into that. I think that that is your specialty uh, a bit. If anyone is unfamiliar, the Prime Trust is a... A, a trust, a custodian, a I don't know what you want to call them. They they perform a lot of tasks in the cryptocurrency industry. Um, and as of today, they perform no tasks in the cryptocurrency industry. They are in receivership, according to the state of Nevada, or they've been petitioned to be in receivership by the state of Nevada. You guys have been covering this and their involvement with uh, True USD and a bunch of other uh, clientele. I, I don't know where you want to start. Let's let, what, what, what do you have to say about Prime Trust, lads? I, I would well, love to hear your, okay. your thoughts. Well, John, to talk about the TUSD stuff, but I, I, I want to jump straight in and, and talk about what a custodian is supposed to be and what Prime Trust purports to be. Um, now, if you've never like set up a hedge fund, never run a fund or anything along those lines, one of the requirements in most jurisdictions that seem reasonable is that um, the investment manager cannot be the one who's holding on to the assets, which makes sense. So you're supposed to have an independent custody. It doesn't matter what kind of um, fund you're kind of running, but you know, let's take, take it like a, a generally like a, a, um, a securities, uh, um, a long short equity, whatever. The, the, the shares should not be in the possession of the investment manager because there's, you know, there's an opportunity for conflicts of interest. You could steal the stuff. You know, any number of things could go wrong. So that's why you have an independent custodian. Now, most in most jurisdictions. They don't actually specify what that has to be because custody is a tricky question. You know what I mean? But I mean, it's in, the rules are meant to be general enough that they cover things like, for instance, if you had uh, a fund that was just investing in um, uh, collectibles, for instance, it's it's hard for the the regulator to specify. Okay, the collectibles must be held, you know, in hermetically sealed garages with certain climate controls and stuff like that. So because the rules were general enough, this is where we started to engage in this industry. In essentially what is custodial theater that's all it is it's it's just saying that yeah okay um the we as the investment manager don't hold the assets the assets are over there but they don't, aren't really holding the assets either because we've as we've seen what they've done is that they've hypothecated those assets to somewhere else because custody is one of those it's meant to be a boring business it's meant to be a stupid business. You just hold the stuff. You know, it's like that episode of Seinfeld where, you know, you when, when he's trying to rent a car. Oh, the rent car, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rent a car, right? Like, yeah, you can take the reservations, but the whole point <laughs> is that you got to hold you the, the you got to yeah. hold the reservations, yeah. and that's the difficult bit, yeah. right? So the thing about custody, it's it's simple. You anybody can take the custody. Anybody can take the custody. You got to hold. Go holding is the bit that that pe people care about. Sorry, go, sorry. Go. So I I I actually want to die. So what you're talking about right now, though, what do you, what exactly are you referring to when it comes to prime trust? Because I, I, I know what you're talking about, but like when you say that there's this custody theater going on, like, what do you mean there's a custody theater going on? What do you mean they're rehypothecating this, uh, <laughs> these assets that they're supposed to be custodying? Can you, can you dive into that a little bit? Okay. So in, in sort of in normal, in normal finance, just think about, you know, money, dollars, euros, whatever. Um, so, uh, a fund, any sort of money manager 
doesn't want to have direct access to the bank accounts themselves so that they can't make a mistake, they can't steal the money, they can't be seen to have stolen the money, whatever. So you pay somebody else to do that, you send them instructions. So Prime Trust is one of a number of institutions in the, in the crypto space in general that are supposed to do that sort of safeguarding and take instructions. Um, and, you know, you do see trouble like this in regular finance from time to time. It's not as catastrophic or frequent or, frankly, amusing in some of the details of this one. Uh, you, know, you know, HSBC has a custodian and your fund has a bank account at HSBC and you send them instructions. And if one of those instructions is to send money to, you know, your wife's personal bank account, they will ask you why. And, you know, there's procedures there. Um, in fact, some of these people, these guys raised a tremendous amount of money for Prime Trust to build a software platform to make this all super efficient. We don't yet know if the super efficiency prevented any of those controls from working, but it seems pretty likely in previous incidents we've seen that, that of course, it did. Mm -hmm. um, now, what Patrick's referring to is, I'll say allegations, they you know, also seem like true statements, <laughs> that these guys just took money from various client accounts they were supposed to, no instructions, ignored instructions, followed the wrong instructions, they lost keys. You know, uh, This is a thing you all have been talking about for a long time, and David Gerrard's been all over this for, for years. You know, if it's not possible to recover from mistakes, you're going to have trouble like this. So they lost a private key, and their solution, of course, instead of admitting it, because it's a crypto business, they didn't admit they lost the private key. Um, they just raided a bunch of client funds and, you know, bought back other stuff and sent them out to people. Now, at a bank, if you make a bad external transfer, you reverse the transfer and you fix it. That has issues. They are different issues than what we're talking about here. Uh, these guys, Prime Trust, seem to have been involved if the state of Nevada has any evidence for any of this, which of course they look something, in all manner of ridiculous behaviors of transferring stuff, buying stuff, losing stuff, hiding stuff, lying about stuff. Um, and again, well, you, using customer stuff yeah, to you, try and yeah. get the, the other yeah. stuff that you lost back. Page, another customer. It's supposed to be a super boring business. No, every large bank has a custody business, or almost all of them do. It's not an exciting place to work. Um, it's not very profitable. It's not, it's not extremely highly paying. Yeah. You know, you, you charge basis points or fractions of a basis point on the amount of assets you're storing. It's supposed to work, be reliable. And you want a huge bank because if this ridiculous ha this happens, you want to be able to sue them and get your money back. And that's the entire point. Here, these guys had not a tremendous amount of money, lost all the assets, and the customers are probably just screwed. I'm, I'm going to let um, Bennett take over here for the, for the next question, but I just want to state... Uh, that according to the petition um, that Nevada filed to, to put Prime Trust into receivership, they have a total client liability of $82,766,000 of fiat currency and nearly a million dollars of cryptocurrency assets that essentially they're missing, that are just, that are gone. Um, and as you said, there's, I, like, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but yes, they lost access to a, quote, legacy wallet. Um, we were not exactly sure what that means or, or, or anything, but I, again, I'm sorry. I just wanted to include those numbers. So, so go ahead, Bennett. Well, no, and what you just mentioned there with the legacy wallet was fascinating to me because it seemed as though they were the original owners of Prime Trust set up this wallet and had this wallet and then they transferred most of the things over to Fireblocks, but not all the things. And then they sold Prime Trust or there were new owners for Prime Trust. And those owners didn't get the private keys for the old legacy wallet. But what I've been confused by is surely someone still has those keys, right? It was surprising to me that the 
they were acting as though these funds in this legacy wallet were unrecoverable, whereas I assumed that someone must have had the keys among the previous owners. And so I've been perplexed as to why they didn't reach out to those owners, sue those owners, something before they ended up in receivership. And I'm just curious if either of you have any thoughts on what might have led to that series of decisions. Well, okay. I, I guess at a higher level, if you look at the litigation and the bankruptcy stuff around their software provider, bank, banks, bank, um, mm-hmm. there's also in insolvency proceedings in Nevada. Now, there's lawsuits alleging that somebody's wife's swingers club business was, you know, so these guys are involved in all manner of things, and I can believe almost any mistake or misplacement occurred. I mean, that thumb drive may have been lost due to water damage. I, I don't know. That's fair. Uh, you know, the whole, it's, it's just crazy, right? I, I, it is, we're normally pretty good at guessing what's going to happen, uh, whether we really know or don't really know. This one is so wild. It's Las Vegas, I, you know. What? And for me, the like one of the most interesting wrinkles I haven't fully been able to wrap my head around with it is that this problem, this purported insolvency, predates their most recent Series B fundraising round where they raised yeah, 107. They, they went solvent when they when they raised, which is uh, yeah, I mean, it's a good good work. Well, they were not just it. insolvent, but they were, I guess, in breach of whatever the yeah. trust rules are in Nevada. Today. Correct. Yeah. 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 And so, and so that's pretty fabulous. Yeah. So <laughs> somehow, besides that existing problem in their books, they've, in addition, burned through a hundred and seven million dollars that they fundraised a year ago. Hundred seventy-five or oh, hundred. No, that's in total. Million. It was yeah, hundred and seven in their yeah, series beat. Yeah. I mean, custody is supposed to be inexpensive and boring, but I guess it's very exciting <laughs> when you run it on the sun. You know. Well, I mean, when you run it on the strip, yeah, you, you know, the, those uh, the limos, the cigars, the champagne rooms, those things aren't cheap. You know. I. It is. It is going to be a fascinating story. It's probably not going to be a very good movie, but it could be like but a it could good be a Netflix twenty question. minute, three, bit of a three maybe a, a short, a Netflix uh, limited series, like five <laughs> episodes, maybe. Yeah, that 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 feels a couple episodes too long for just Prime Trust with how many other things keep blowing up. Um, no, and Prime Trust served a few different clients, but one of the most interesting ones for me has always been some of the minor stable coins that relied on it, especially yeah. like the True Family, and. You have previously posited that many of those smaller stablecoins were serving in some way as an on-ramp or a backing for other larger, more important stablecoins. I would love if you could kind of walk through that theory and what led you to that point. Sure, sure, sure. So um, I guess the first observation that really slapped me in the face in that department, uh, Huobi had a stablecoin, the Huobi dollar. And on their webpage, this has got to be going on two years ago now, it said in, you know, big letters that they had minted 10.5 billion Huobi dollars and they burned 10.25 billion Huobi dollars and they had a balance of 250 million Huobi dollars. And, you know, that just looks odd. Right? But okay, you know, so I, I contacted them, I telegram, chat, email, whatever, I don't remember. Um, and I asked, do you just have any minting and burning statistics for this thing? Where did this money come from or go? That's a lot of money. You could probably correlate it with something else. And this is going back years. So $10 billion in 2022 may sound like a, a, a not, you know, an amount of money you might not be able to locate. In 2019, 2020, these are amounts of money you should be able to be able to spot. Yeah, so they, they told me they don't track any of that kind of stuff, have any of that kind of information. I spoke to a couple of other stablecoin providers who similarly, nothing. So we began looking at the histories of those kinds of things, and you see fascinating patterns where 
money comes in, money goes out, and some other line seems to be accumulating the, the, the money that came out. Or prints of money, you know, so money is transferred into the true dollar, they issue a bunch of tokens, they sit in some wallet for a while, then they get redeemed. What was the purpose of that? So it, it, that sets off some suspicions, and then once you notice that the amount of money coming out of this seems to correlate with bank balances, amount of tether, stuff like that, it feels like, oh, okay, this is a way to get money in. And I guess this connects back to, to Prime Trust. If you look at the way a lot of these on-ramps mechanically functioned, they make use of trusts and other similar types of custody-ish providers in jurisdictions that are not absolutely top tier, right? So the trust laws in New York are pretty solid. There's a lot of enforcement. There's a lot of finance, some stuff in the UK, and, you know, Singapore, custody, finance yeah. stuff. Nevada, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, these are not places that are famous for this kind of work. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the people who implement the rules, but, you know, if you set up a trust and start pumping billions and billions of dollars through it, I don't know that they're really equipped to look at it. And it feels like that might have been, of course it now clearly was, uh, a bit of a weakness in the system to, to get money in. The way, and this is sort of US legal stuff, the way states have to recognize each other's uh, rules and certifications and licensures, if you're a licensed trust company in Nevada and you follow Nevada's rules, once the dollars are there, you can send it to New York. And now they're in a large bank that connects to everybody. And it, it started to feel like that route was probably pretty big uh, and then you pick up the rock, you know, Kaz, you did some wonderful reporting about the true dollar sort of ownership situation, what, a year, year and a half ago. You start to pick up the rock of who's owning and operating these businesses and realize that they have direct connections to people who have a, you know, pretty solid suspicion are involved in some weird cross-border transfers. It kind of starts to fall into place then. Because no one, once you accept that the dollar is sitting inside some of these stable coins and... Signature Bank, Silvergate Bank, whatever, are real dollars. The question is, where did they come from? And it does not feel like American retail investors wired all that money in that quickly. If you look at the market cap charts, the big rises predate the stadium advertising rights and the TV commercials, and the money was already there. So these facilities were not paid for by people who saw Tom Brady on television and transferred money to Coinbase. And we know that because the money was already there before Tom Brady got on television I'm not picking on Tom Brady. Lots of people have lots made of lots of advertisements they should regret, so whatever. Um, so it, that, that was an interesting observation that led us to start to sort of view the ecosystem in, in a completely different way. Um, yeah. yeah I, don't know, I guess I've maybe been something of it, the, the anti-tether truther for a while in the sense that I keep telling people the money's the there. Money's there. Like, I, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, this is something I actually want to, yeah, because I, I find that that we might not always see eye to eye on some of this stuff, but I actually, I, I really appreciate the stuff you guys are pointing out because it's stuff that I haven't necessarily thought about. Um, and, and I do think like, uh, this is a very good example of, uh, of you guys being privy to this in, in the sense that you were paying a lot of attention to this before a lot of other people, I think, um, Protos obviously, um, and some of our colleagues, have done some really good work on on covering this. I am curious, though, um, since we're talking about since we're talking about some of these redemptions and these um, uh, these these amounts of money sitting 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 in accounts for extended periods of time and then being redeemed. Um, we did have TUSD specifically putting out this statement that like everything was fine, 
that they have all these other rails and they indeed very well may, uh, as far as I, I know. But what we have seen, and you guys have pointed out, is that there have been really no redemptions since all of this has happened. And then they also sent an email, apparently, to a bunch of their users that said, unfortunately, um, you will be unable to mint and redeem TUSD as well as any of our true coins, including TAUD, TCAD, and TGBP, while prime trust operations are suspended. Which is like a really odd statement to make if you indeed have all of these other rails that you can move money through. Like, why are you suspending minting and redemption if you do have all these other rails available for customers? And I'm wondering if you guys have any um, thoughts about what's going on right now. Okay, yeah, so I guess for one second, we're talking about what their other rails are and then maybe candidate explanations for what's going on. So they, they had, and we can come back to this in more detail a bit later, but they had an attestation procedure that listed where their money was held. So we know the names of the sorts of banks and trust companies that, that held their money. At least we did We did for a while. Yeah. Uh, and that included, uh, I mean, the most reputable, I guess, Manual. organization on there. Well, Manual. Okay, we'll come back to Manual. Uh, you know, BitGo was on there for a token amount of money. Prime Trust was on there. And then a number of offshore uh, organizations. Capital right? Union. So, uh, bank, banks in the Caribbean, trust company in Hong Kong. No shade on banks in the Caribbean and trust companies in Hong Kong. But even if those are still functioning rails and their first statement was accurate, you're not going to tell your U.S. domestic Western Europe retail customers wire their money to some trust in Hong Kong and go on board with that. Yeah. Or go get an account at this private bank in the Caribbean. So it can simultaneously be true that they have multiple rails, but 99% of their customers by number, not by you know dollars, don't have access to those facilities and can't use them anyway. Right. So uh, they use First Digital in Hong Kong has had a lot of their money for a long time. I've never tried to onboard with First Digital, but I know that their sister parent company is like a Hong Kong trust company that does wealthy people offshore fund management. I don't think you can use your Visa debit card to put five grand into the true dollar through them. That's not their business. Yeah per their website. So I'm criticizing them, fine. No, I mean, That's so fine. that statement, right, yeah. in a sense, can only be understood from the perspective of quantum physics. It is both true and not yeah. true. Yeah. It, it depends <laughs> who you are, right? For some customers, it's true. The, the wave function collapses depending on what uh, yeah, what part of the world you come from. Correct. Um, <laughs> so I, I, a lot of the time, I think, these people are not actually lying. So what you've got there is we have multiple rails, but they're only available to a handful of our customers, and as we know from historical usage patterns, the vast majority of the volume was only a handful of customers, yeah. right? So it can be true that 99% of their clients cannot use the service, Correct. but 99% of their clients by volume are perfectly happy with the existing rails. Yeah. That's not even a bad business for getting the money being stolen. Once you get past the money disappearing suddenly without yeah. warning. Yeah. Well, I don't think that they lost those people's money, right? <laughs> no, I mean, and this is, this is, we talk about this a lot, and, and it's one of the reasons why we never really bothered too much about asking whether or not Tether is bagged and yeah. stuff like that. Because if your business is the carriage of funds for, you know, between borders, yeah. which otherwise would be challenging under normal circumstances, you need to know where every single last dollar is because these are people whom you don't want to upset. Well, a reasonable number of the customers are. Yeah, and they probably have a priority list, and, you know, fine. I, we don't want to know who that is, whatever. And, um. and then if... If things go bad, you know, it's it's more of a case that like, okay, um, simple analogy I think that most, most of the viewers would understand is like, let's say you borrow my car to run drugs from Tijuana up to San Diego, and then it gets it gets impounded. The car doesn't stop existing, but we probably can't drive it around anymore because it's been impounded by, you know, the DEA. 
So that's more than likely what's going to happen in some of these cases where the dollars are there, but you know, Polizia, what, what's that last scene from that movie that said? Oh, in uh, Layer Cake, where it Layer turns out the, the drug yeah. dealers, the, 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 the pills were lost to the police, whatever, we'll go make more. We'll go make more, yeah. Polizia. Polizia, Polizia yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah that's, that's how it is. So, um, yeah, there you go. I mean, I think one of the key sort of trading investment observations, because we originally came with this from a you know trading point of view. But we still do. It, yeah. Once you know that the money's probably there, it means that the catalyst for things falling apart is law enforcement actions, like you said Correct. this morning. Yeah. Right, and that's the way you need to play it, as opposed to you know run on the bank causing stuff to to collapse. That feels less likely, whereas you know headlines are likely to have much longer lasting impact. Well, as someone who's been watching Tether for. <laughs> very long way too long now um, it's half a decade it's half a decade at half, this point Cass. over half a decade pretty much right <laughs> over half a decade um uh for for someone who's been watching it for that long and knowing that they've a, a lot of what they've done in plain sight and been fined for and had regulators come 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 at them for um and they're still not shut down and um even when when Eight hundred and fifty million dollars out of you know three billion dollars yeah. was was seized from them. It didn't matter. It didn't stop them. And I'm just, I I've seen a lot of the work you guys have done on the um, commercial paper, which I thought was fascinating actually. And I wanted to bring that up. I don't know. Maybe we can we should bring it up later. I'm not sure. But like you guys were pointing out that there were um, re repetition of of uh, percentages of interest rates and. Um, at different times and just just things that accountants take note of and go um this is like consistent with what frauds do um but it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that's what's happening but it is certainly yes. like sus suspicious um and i just wonder like you're you're talking about wanting to trade based on knowing that you need regulatory enforcement action to trade on the on like on, oh, on... no, I, I, I don't think quite in that direction. I guess pri prior to Luna, we're trying to look at, you know, identifying stuff for doing whatever, doing business. Uh, I was a derivative trader for a long time, whatever, you design trading protocols and you, you, you do business. Um, beyond that, it became clear that solvency was important to analyze and understanding uh, the circumstances under which the insolvency is realized. So I'm not trying to trade the headlines, the enforcement okay. action. I'm saying, look, as long as these people aren't getting arrested, their money's not getting seized, whatever. And the this, this signs you want to look for in public statements are statements consistent with the money being seized. Statements like, you people can't access our system anymore, but you people are fine. <laughs> Those are consistent with these people's money having been seized, right? Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, the system's offline, we're doing maintenance on the wallet. That, that's just more general we're not the most honest or high quality exchange operators in the world. Now, Those are different things. Yeah, but kind of on that note of who has access and when, one thing that was interesting to me as I was um, re-reviewing some of the stuff you guys have written on Medium and stuff in preparation for this episode is Alameda Research was the largest issuer of tethers, narrowly edging out Cumberland Global as of November 2021. And it seemed like Alameda was also the largest issuer and redeemer of true USD, I believe, and HUSD for its brief and largely uneventful um, existence. Uneventful for some. <laughs> uneventful in terms of being used as a primary pair for trading, <laughs> being used for what it was its stated purpose was. 
Do you have any thoughts on the fact that for those three very seemingly different stable coins, Alameda Research was the most important for each of them? Well, yeah, okay, so the, the product there was the ability to get dollars into the system and move dollars across borders without restrictions. That's been the product basically forever. Sam's early interviews were about how that was their product in, what, 2018, yep. when they were funded by that pot business uh, exit. You know, it's that's always been a large part of what this ecosystem's about. Um, uh, I think a lot of people are going to have to accept that their activities for the last few years were providing background noise to allow people to transfer money from place to place that would have otherwise been very difficult. And if you look at the early... Bitcoin major thefts and hacks and whatever transfers, essentially all of that has been tracked and frozen and not okay. And what happened this time is there was a ridiculous amount of noise. And so reasonable amounts of money got from place to place without trouble. The Genesis Block guy, who was Alameda Research, right, we now know, yes. gave interviews on YouTube explaining they were onboarding bags of cash in yeah. countries where there are not a lot of people with bags Bag of, of U.S. Yeah. dollars. Well, and Those are clearly what we're feeding into the, the statistics you just mentioned. It can only have been from there because, you know. And uh, one of their other partners also at one point talked about their um, network of dozens of bank accounts they maintained. And during the course of the interview, he's like, this is a very gray area. <laughs> Which, uh, That's the one. It, which, and so, yeah, that I think that Alameda Research's role in terms of moving money globally is still somewhat underappreciated. And you see it in their relationships with this stablecoin. You see it, as you mentioned, in Genesis Block, who, again, was a Tether client who did tens of millions of dollars of Tether transactions, which at the time we didn't know to categorize under Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, and then besides that, you also see... Um, Hivex, a over-the-counter trading desk Sam Bankman-Fried bought in Australia using Alameda Research. They had someone on their staff who was in charge of bank account brokering. Then again, in yep. Genesis Block OTC in Hong Kong, you've got them talking about their network of dozens of bank accounts. And you have then these minor stable coins, including both like HUSD and TrueUSD, relying on various trusts. Huobi for a while relied on their own trust, Huobi Trust, which they set up in Nevada, I think. You had True USD yeah. using like Alliance Trust before and Prime Trust. And then yeah, and so there are legitimate dollars moving I, through this. And we saw I, I that. I would point out that mm -hmm. the, the director officer or whatever for Huobi's trust in Nevada for it's a while is an ex-professional poker player with yeah. a Chinese name. And some of the early addresses associated with that are actually in China. Some of those addresses are at locations that really make you question who owns this thing. Um, Google Maps is your friend on that one. That's anyway. a very curious little nugget to drop. But yeah, no, I, I think that just the more we've seen develop and like especially I think the now that we've seen some indictments against key figures in the conspiracy, I think that we're kind of going to see, as you've suggested in a lot of your tweets and posts recently, prosecutors have this information now. They have Signature Bank. They have Silvergate. They have those exchange networks, which were Silvergate and Signet, Sen and Signet, which were both important for a lot of this. And I think one of the examples you guys previously discussed with this was in the like moments immediately surrounding when Signature got seized, there was a very large issuance yes. of true USD. And we saw yeah. a lot of money briefly stored in the manual bank, which is a new one. I've been unable to find them with Google. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, do you have any yeah, like so thoughts on the role of those two specific banks, those specific exchange networks, and how that connected in? 
So, okay. Sure. Well, I mean, that that actually happened on the weekend. We were actually um, we were in the office <laughs> and we were watching it live. So we we had the attestations. You know, True Dollar used to to put out the attestations and stuff like that where everything was. Um, manual obviously now, as we know, means limbo. Um, means like uh, it's a quantum state dollar, so it may or may not exist. Um, and then what? Now, what we, we can't know is whether or not the people who initiated those transfers, the last transfers, because Signet continued to work on the weekend that Signature Bank was seized, yeah. which is, that's fascinating. Um, um, and I would, I would assume that it's either because, I mean, Signet's not meant to, it's supposed to be a 24-7 constantly working kind of thing. So uh, presumably when the feds came in, seized the bank, they either didn't, they chose not to, to shut down Signet or didn't know how to shut down Signet or... You know, hadn't really had the, you know because you just come in, you you got to try and figure figure everything out. It's a weekend, you know, only the key. Well, okay, but the, the money ended up at this bank. Correct. Correct. So, the, so the, we the, don't know if that was an internal transfer to their bank in New York yeah. or what and who. But we down. know that the money moved um, through Signet and about almost a billion dollars uh, landed in Capital Union eventually. Yeah. Then they took down the attestations. So so whether or not um, <laughs> somebody already knew. And was doing that in a timely manner to get the money out of the U.S. banking system, where if they had not gotten out of the banking system, it would have gotten seized, possibly, um, or it, they were just lucky and they, they happened to do it at the same time that the bank was getting seized. I mean, it, there was about a week there where it was expected a couple of these banks were about to get whacked. Exactly. At which point you'd have expected their bank account brokering, you know, SWAT team was in there trying to open accounts wherever they could and trying to get wire transfers yeah. in. That Circle had that large deposit at a bank that was in peril was hardly really secret information among, you know, reasonable number of people. So, yeah, they were trying to open accounts and get wires through. It looks like their wires eventually settled. We're assuming that they reported them correctly, the money got out. And that manual kind of meant, their account will be set up soon. I'm going to send you this money. Please just do something. Fix it. Hold it when it arrives. And then they just sort of turned off the transparency part. Um, I mean, I, I would go back for a second to connect your Alameda Research yeah. question to why everything we're talking about are U.S. banks. And I think people don't realize, you know, Tether had a lot of banking trouble and people in the space had a lot of banking trouble for a long time. And then somehow this group of young, relatively naive people with American passports who were willing to fill out bank account forms with ridiculous company names and incorrect descriptions of businesses were willing to start to intermediate this stuff. It's then no surprise that those people became the main intermediaries because Sam could open bank accounts in North America with no real trouble, right? He had some kind of a CV, and he said, oh, I'm going to run a trading firm and a bank would open him an account. Maybe they'd have trouble later, but until he was all over television, that worked. Whereas a bunch of, these are historically either people from nationalities, countries, regions, business areas that might have struggled. A bunch of former financial professional early 20s people with American passports aren't going to have that difficulty. And so they were able to start to build conduits to get the money into the system. You know, Tether wasn't running accounts. I mean, forget the part where they had their lawyer's name on some of the stuff. You know, they, they weren't doing that in New York quite so much. Right. Uh, these people were able to do that. And so you ended up in a situation where absurd transfers within the U.S. banking system were happening. When it finally got figured out, everybody panicked and tried to pull that's that's what you're seeing. That's what you've seen. Well, that haven't been said. There's still quite a substantial amount of money that has left been left unclaimed. Yeah, there's some money in, we don't know. Yeah, in still remaining in these banks, yeah. which I suspect it's not. I mean, it's not gonna be like Ocean's Eleven where the whole bunch of them start walking through the the, the lobby of the bank and go like, hey, I'm, you know, we kind of want our, our money back. I, I think it's it's gonna be like more like the last scene of Layer Cake where you know Polizia and you accept that the money's just gone. The money's just gone. That's the cost yeah. of doing business. 
uh, when you want to engage in these sort of activities. It's, it, it seems like Silvergate and Signature in particular decided they were okay with facilitating this stuff. And then a whole facade was built to allow the onboarding of questionable entities, pump the money through, and then a couple of little central places to feed from place to place. Uh, there weren't really that many players involved, it turns out. Right? So, Can, you know. I, I, maybe you guys know better than I do, but I, one of my questions throughout all of this continually is about correspondent banks and the role that they play in all of this and how, like, like you just mentioned, right? We saw all this money move through Signet right as Signature is getting shut down and go to Capital Union Bank, which is an offshore bank, um, and which has also been playing like a major role with uh, Tether, it turns out as well. Why wouldn't the correspondent banks for, say, you know, hypothetically, Capital Union or Dell Tech do something about this if, it, if it's posing such an issue? Okay, so I guess I'll spend a few moments here explaining how offshore banking works kind of mechanically. So we can, this is not a legal description of how you do this, it's yeah. a stylistic description, but we can set up a company here that we called whatever John and Patrick Offshore Bank, PTE. And then we would go use that registration to set up accounts at banks in the rest of the world. So Citibank, US, UK, Japan, whatever. And we can now take deposits from customers through those bank accounts, right? The entire offshore financial system is based on companies incorporated offshore that have bank accounts onshore and transact through accounts in their own name. They're listed as clearing account, custody account, corporate account, whatever. And then your deposits at our bank are basically a spreadsheet that we have. They're a system on that computer. That's how we keep track of who has what claims on what things in what bank accounts. The segregation is a legal concept if you have a banking license, a trust license, a custody license, whatever it is that works like that. So all of the money center banks, correspondent banks, the large banks in the world that are intermediating this stuff, they have a huge line of business that is processing payments for people that have some kind of money transmitter license things, banking license, money transmitter license, payment transmitter license, whatever. And they run payments back and forth through them among their clients from bank to bank, among different parts of the bank. So if my Japanese clients are withdrawing more than my British clients, I'll move money from my correspondent account in the UK to my correspondent account in Japan. Those types of flows are just part and parcel of offshore finance. Now, you can argue the surveillance is good enough, not good enough, whatever, but if a bank in the Caribbean opens a bunch of clearing accounts at money center businesses, Western Europe, North America, kind of considered okay. The bank doesn't have any liability for malfeasance through that account, very, very limited, because they're banking a licensed bank, an offshore bank, yeah. an insurance company, a financial services business. That is not their top priority. Their top priority is, you know, does this person with an address in Moscow who gave me what looks like a fake passport, are they on a sanctions list? That the bank cares about. Did this bank in Antigua happen to move some money from some people that I don't even know about? It's a lower priority for them. Now, in cases where it turns out that person was a sufficiently bad status per, you know, OFAC or the North Koreans or whatever, it can be a serious problem. But if it's a bunch of people in Vietnam or Cambodia trying to move money across borders, yeah, nobody really historically cares. the U.S. government couldn't care less. Yeah. Right? They're certainly not going to come after Citibank in the U.S. or the U.K. for facilitating yeah. that stuff. There was a situation where uh, BNP was involved in some Sudan-related stuff about 10, 11 years ago. And the only reason BNP got in real trouble was that people within BNP were helping to remove parts of the SWIFT messages to make it clear that they knew or didn't know who was what part of thing from Sudan that wasn't allowed. Then they got hit very hard. But if those guys had washed it through Sokgen Beirut, nobody would have ever said a word. 
I mean, this isn't advice on how to this, this is not, like, like, I'm actually, make it really this it, is not an instruction manual. But, but, but it kind of is, because it, once you understand how yeah. this stuff works and what people get caught for, you realize how the system naturally migrated to find a crack, and it just exploited that crack. The trust system in general, coming back to the beginning of the discussion, in the United States appears to be a pretty big crack here. And I expect there are going to be some discussions about federalizing trust regulations in larger sort of legal overhaul here. Um, that could take a while. Oh, I'm not saying they're going to finish soon, but you know, the, this that people were able to use correspondent banks like this. Yeah. Well, look, the way that you transferred money into FTX offshore for years was to transfer money into a Deltec corporate account in Citibank London and put in the comment field where it was really going. Same That's, for Binance. Yeah, yeah. Now, Citibank London does surveillance. I don't think that really it was a top priority of theirs to do surveillance on Caribbean clearing account, whatever. Okay, I don't even fault them for that. It's just a system. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think I want to point out that none of this is illegal. None of it was illegal. Like, as long as the banks, those offshore banks, right, who, who had the accounts in their own same name, did, did their proper KYC AML for the when, initial customers that they onboarded. Yeah, I mean, okay, so there are ways in which this can all have been legal. There are ways in which some of this was not legal. I, we're now finding out the quality of the legal representation of some of the people involved. That was a separate document from a day or two ago. So I no longer, I believed pretty strongly that a lot of the stuff was probably done legally for a yes. while. Having read that Attorney One document, I'm no longer so convinced that's the case. But, you know, there are plausible ways in which this sorry, could have been. Sorry, I want to um, interrupt just quickly just to point out that, that, that what Jonathan is referencing here is a, um, a document that was released about... All of these, I, I don't even know what to call it, but just basically, I won't name who the attorney is. He's referenced attorney as attorney one. one. Yeah. Uh, he or she is referenced as attorney one, and they... I wouldn't um, want to play poker with them. I'd worry they were looking at my no, cards. No, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. I'd be worried about God mode for sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they, they basically were doing everything they could to help... SBF navigate black market territory. I mean, not even gray market territory. Like, yeah. pretty much, definitely illegal shit um, that was going on. So, sorry, what I just wanted to clear all, all uh, kinds of all kinds of weirdness. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. for now, these are just allegations from the debtors in possession, of course. Though, admittedly, the debtors in possession do now have the entire books and all the correspondence. But <laughs> we should. Yeah, so I guess add our, our original operating thesis most of the time has been. The statements are probably true if you squint correctly, and the activities were probably legal if you squint correctly. And I'm pulling back a little bit from that now. That, that was that was what that was intended to. You know, we have a situation there where a major player and an experienced advisor appear to have done stuff that's nowhere near the line. Correct. So it, yeah. for sure. But I I do think that this this goes back to like the, your commercial paper observations with um yeah. with yeah. with like Tether, where I think. It's fair to say that a lot of it, when you're thinking about American companies and what you would want them invested in, like perhaps not what you would hope an American company would be invested in, right? Like not top tier stuff, but not the worst commercial paper in the world. But then you go, why are they hiding this? Why were they trying so hard to not show this to anybody? And then the the, the little weird stuff that you guys were noticing where it's like, oh, there's these weird repetitive interest rates there's these weird like just anomalies that you don't expect to see and i and i wonder if if things like that are starting to shift your own perspective on this as well um we have a theory about this actually so we don't know because okay like when you have a portfolio snapshot you have a timestamp 
typically. This thing defies timestamps because some of it happens in the future, <laughs> some of it happens in the past, some of it overlaps the period of time when you're sort of taking a snapshot. So I don't know what this is. So one possibility, and we've discussed this, is that that's the intention. The intention is like, okay, um, you know, uh, this is what NYAG, right? For the Southern District. So I know you guys are not equipped to handle this crap. I'm just going to throw up a whole bunch of paper at you that's completely random. There's going to be dates all over the place. Wow. Stuff is not going to match. Stuff is going to be, some stuff is going to be for the future. Some stuff is going to be for the past. You have wow. to dig through all of this because you're the ones who's, who's asking for it, right? So I'm not going to make your life easy. So it's the same, um, it's the Drown same situation. Them in information, basically. Correct. So it's the same situation like in a liquidation. So sometimes it's, not lies. it's just papers are not in the yeah, right yeah, order. Correct. Good luck. Yeah. So like, it, like oh, okay. Say for instance, um, this happens all the time, often with um, opposing counsel, right? So like when you ask for request documents, I'm giving you the documents. That doesn't mean I have to, yeah. you know, chronicle the stuff or put it in alphabetical order or any kind of order. I could just dump everything into a box. Some stuff is going to be going from 1980. Some, and I'm going to mix in some of the stuff from, from the, the late 2000s inside <laughs> that same box just to mess with you so that your associates are going to spend 350 bucks an hour trying to sort through all this garbage. Uh-huh. And you know the NYAG doesn't have the manpower to do that. So there is the possibility and the, that that was the intention. And then yeah. that's why you see what you see. Now, the other problem, of course, is that, and, and we applied Benford's law to this, which is uh, basically, you know, how numbers... Uh, John, John, I'll tell you more about Benford's fraud law. Fraud detection statistics. It's a fraud detection statistical system. So anyway, we applied Benford's law to this in some of the numbers, and um, yeah, so that, it, 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 didn't, it didn't comply. So, so there, there, there are issues there, and then when you see that there are typographical errors, which looks like sloppy cut-and-paste type jobs and stuff like that, um, add, add on, tag on to the fact that the, the, the dates don't, don't match yeah. up and stuff like that it's impossible to really draw any kind of I mean I, so I will say again it, so having done trading for a long time at you know large bank or whatever you, you deal with st- businesses that have blown up and mistakes and people that didn't run stuff properly this also has a lot of the hallmarks of when you're flown over to deal with an exploded trading desk right these mistakes are familiar to me and it isn't necessarily that they were making it all up a lot of the players in this space have not demonstrated the highest level of competence. And so I can also believe that the money kept getting wired to the same place and somebody just copy-pasted all the bond details and they were actually issuing something and something was really happening here. And the reason it doesn't look like organic market activity is it was more buffoonish than that. But it doesn't mean it didn't happen, it just means it didn't happen well. Well, that's very, very believable to me. I've encountered that before where, why'd you do the exact same thing for the exact same price over and over and over? Oh, okay, because you didn't really know how to price this in the first place. And you just assumed it was right the first time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we can't assume these people really know what they're doing finance-wise because they've shown themselves not to, right? I and, th- and things like uh, the missing LEIs, QSIPs, ISINs, that's not necessary. That doesn't necessarily mean anything either ways because there are tons of uh, commercial paper, which is OTC, that doesn't have all these. Yeah, numbers. I mean, I'm a little bit disappointed in the New York Attorney General for not requiring them when they were providing information about securities to provide identifiers for those securities. One of the bank statements that they produced looked like a totally standard statement, and those may well have been under the black cover-ups. The spreadsheet with the dates that make no sense, how this was considered acceptable without... ISIN's QSIP, something. I am disappointed. I am disappointed. I hope that Coindesk sends a clarification and gets a better bit bit back because that's just not really. Well, I do think you're right. I I think I think um, they don't. The the New York Attorney General does not have the staff to 
be able to competently and consistently go through all of the data that they were being given by Tether. I, th I think that's totally a fair statement on your part. Um, and that's why you end up seeing kind of these weird numbers and these weird uh, issuances. But sorry, Bennett. You, I well, yeah, so, so that's one explanation. I also uh, saw one of you tweeting about a hypothetical mechanisms by which this commercial yes, paper yes. could be a useful instrument to manage alternative offshore dollar flows and things like that. Could you walk through what that hypothetically would look like, of course? Sure, sure. So, so I think commercial paper, as with a lot of things in, in crypto, is a very specific term in finance that most people here don't understand and it's mis being misused. So what these people mean by commercial paper is short-term debt issued by some kind of company. That is not the definition, but let's just go with that in a vague sense. So when I saw that list of bonds, many of the companies on that list of bonds have nothing to do with crypto. They have nothing to do with banking. There's parts of Renault and Glencore and General Motors Auto Financing, whatever. So those, to me, are completely standard borrowers in the offshore dollar market. So Glencore Funding just runs a program where they borrow money from people at low prices. Continuously, whenever somebody wants to buy some kind of bond, Glencore will take the bond and working with a bank, produce whatever payoff um, the, the customer wants. That's a completely standard product. The bank issuers on there, the industrial issuers, I think ArcelorMittal is on there. Any capital intensive business, any large finance business does this. 100% standard offshore finance. Now, once you realize these are not U.S. domestic companies issuing 180-day commercial paper, actual commercial paper, they're just some kind of business issuing some kind of short-term debt. Okay, now things open up a little bit. So we know that there's a lot of demand to get money, uh, well, from China and from other restricted currency jurisdictions in, in general, and we know a lot of the banks on that list have Chinese names on them. So if I wanted to get money out of China into a stablecoin, this is just an imagined sequence of steps, right? So I go meet at a, maybe it's a Luckin Coffee, at a coffee shop in China, my stablecoin dealer, and I give them a bunch of local currency. Wire it to their bank account, give them a bag, whatever. And they give me a you know, thumb drive with my stablecoins on them. Somehow, these things have to get turned into dollars somewhere. And in China, and in other countries with restricted currencies, Argentina, Brazil, you know, this could also be in a coffee shop in Brazil, right? It's the same, same issue, Argentina. Um, so they need to, to arrange that somehow. Now, one of the simplest stylistic ways of doing this is to get a bank that has a presence in that country and outside of that country to take a deposit for the local currency. Right? Then we'll come back to how they're able to convert it to foreign currency later, but execute some kind of maybe, maybe not okay foreign currency transaction, and then use that to purchase a bond. They just had one of these offshore funding vehicles issue and hand it to the issuer. So what's happened now is effectively I've given a bag of money to a guy in a coffee shop and Tether International Limited in the Cayman Islands, whatever, has just been handed a bond issued by some generic offshore international finance issuer. These banks, and this is again true in every country with a restricted currency, banks have some amount of leeway and quota for converting local currency to foreign currency and they can bend the rules, not bend the rules, whatever, people get arrested for this kind of stuff all the time, right? Malfeasance in this space is part and parcel, again, of, of this type of finance. Whether you give a bag to this guy and a different bag to that guy, whatever. Um, so it, it is conceivable that issuers take the money and then it disappears onshore into some kind of process and then hand a bond somebody over there. 
and no intermediary in the step really knew every part of what was going on. So it, it you know, again, it's gray area, right? The Chinese bank, whatever bank with a presence in China, takes a deposit. They eventually write off your deposit. They convert your money to dollars. They send it offshore. They get a bond created. And that's the end of that. Something like that appears to have happened on at least some scale, and it would answer what's always been a question for me. You know, whatever you think of the people running Tether and, and other products in this space, they're not just accumulating an infinite pile of one currency and promising people one unit of another. That doesn't make any sense. Right. They're not just backing their tether with RMB and hoping for the best. Right? That's not a realistic strategy. I don't think anybody's doing that in $50 billion. Right? So this looks like a vehicle for that. If somebody could find some of those bonds and find who the arranger was, then you might be able to start to narrow down into who's doing the dodgy spot transactions. Now, the mechanics for that get to be a bit more complicated, but people can understand how you know, sometimes you can't convert currency and sometimes you can. Sometimes if you pay somebody, they'll let you. So that's, that's a, a rough description of what happened there. Once the money is available to purchase the offshore bond, they can call up any bank and say, we have money in a, it could be ICBC offshore, it could be any bank's, whatever standard account. Okay, I need a Glencore funding three-month zero coupon. Okay, fine, here, next. Right, that's a totally standard transaction. And that would introduce a lot of intermediaries, maybe a little bit of a crack again, right? And that should work. That should give or take work. It is... <laughs> this entire conversation has felt like a uh, <laughs> a discussion of capital controls and how they're commonly evaded. Um, and like at yeah. a certain level, that makes sense. Like very explicitly, that's what some of these stable coins are for. Tether on their own website says USDT provides an alternative that allows entities and individuals to circumvent capital yeah. controls by utilizing yeah. an entirely different financial infrastructure. This yep. has been the marketing for a lot of these types of products. Also, that's a wild thing to write on your website. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, I find this conflict sort of fascinating. So the, the first sort of novel product that you can build in this space that I had stumbled across was this idea of giving dollar bank accounts to people who live in places where that is mm -hmm. illegal. Setting aside the moral, political, whatever questions, that's, yeah, just a weird business to be advertising. You can imagine situations where certain governments would look kindly on helping dissidents in a place they don't like, whatever. But, you know, they're not going to look kindly on some of the other users. And I think it's fair to say that dissidents probably don't have as much money as criminals. But, uh, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't make the rules. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. That advertising is, it's odd, right? It's odd. That this is a big use case does not surprise anyone who's dealt in emerging market foreign exchange for a long time. And, like, there's been reporting for years that's kind of, supported that as one of the largest use cases for these stablecoins and some of these entities, right? From uh, Zhao Dong's arrest and his connections to uh, Tian Tian and, uh, oh, the other gambling app that he was laundering money for. Well, I mean, well and then just Anna, Anna Bidakova doing reporting yeah, that was about gonna be my next Russia, one. Russia, um, Russia was a, a pipeline for USDT. I'm well, actually just... operations in Argentina and Nigeria, mm -hmm. and those are... You know, you can argue that you're helping these people fight the whatever, fight sure. the man, but clearly you're also... I just want to point out that plenty of offshore online casinos choose Tether as, as the mm -hmm. primary carriage vehicle. So, and this has been going on forever. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. Um, from what I've been told, um, they like it because it's... It, you know, it circumvents capital controls. They don't have to pay tax on it. I'm I'm pretty curious right now, and I know this is this is a very basic question, so I, I no no long answer necessary. But I 
we're going through this. We're almost an hour into our conversation now. And I feel like we're towing this weird line between like, oh, this is a huge, <laughs> a huge problem that law enforcement is cognizant of and concerned about. And then also walking this line of like, yeah, but it's just going to keep happening and go on forever. And there's no way that law enforcement is going to stop it. And I'm curious, like, which part of this you're most um, sidelined with, I guess, is like, which side are you on here? Is, 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 do you, are you confident that LE is going to move in or are you more like, I, I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen next. Okay. So, I mean, offshore finance has always included a fair amount of gray area stuff, light gray area, whatever. And in principle, no one has a problem with that, right? So if you have a factory in some emerging market and you want to get some of your money out of it, whatever, whether it's nominally illegal in that country, nobody has a real strong opinion on and you can find a way to do export invoicing, fine. Nobody wants to shut that down. Um, but at the same time, the businesses that have historically done that don't advertise to retail yes. and sports stadium billboards. What you've seen here is a business that everyone accepts has to exist and is fine and in most cases really isn't doing anything wrong. Tax-free structuring in the British Virgin Islands for funds and reallocation and stuff, even ignoring taxes, is totally fine. It makes There are a lot of legitimate reasons to do those things. But then you don't just advertise the ability to do this to everybody in the world, take retail money. and that, that, That's the conflict. That's what has to be resolved. So it's not going to be totally shut down, but you're not going to get to have, A, the background noise of all this retail money, right? Or B, people claiming that it scales to all the money in the world because it doesn't. Offshore finance is big, but it's not that big, and it's not that. I, mean, right? I think, I think that the bit that, and it's not as if it's, this is like, you know, there's a whole bunch of, I mean, yes, some laws have been broken, but the, the general business of offshore finance is, is this is it. I mean, and, and I wrote about this. Um, mostly legal, right? Yeah, this yeah, right, is right. doing yeah, stuff directly in your Yeah, account. almost all of it, but well, most of it is legal. So, and I wrote about this, which is that there are legitimate reasons why you need offshore finance. And, uh, and, I, and again, we don't make any moral judgment about this as to whether or not you should harmonize global tax laws. Obviously, if you harmonize global tax laws, then this would yeah. not be a thing. But till that great day of deliverance, um, <laughs> people are going to arbitrage um, tax wherever they may be you know what i mean like if i am a digital company i can and i need to book my revenues through island where there's no tax yeah. and my my cfo would be fired if he didn't do that yeah. you know what i mean it's just it's just yeah. the, the right the, well it's the, the the same thing to do you know the famous iris the structure apple used in ireland isn't advertised by h&r block to retail Correct. And that was never going to fly that that's the conflict that, that's the short answer so that, that's it, the yeah this is yeah you know these this is a set of rules, whether you like it or not. And, and I, I think um, one of the things, and I, I read the Panama Papers, and, and one of the things I, and I feel for them, that there's a certain sense of idealism at the end of the book, which says that, oh, you know, we should all have a kumbaya moment, we should stop all of this injustice. It's been almost a decade since the yeah. Panama Papers were published. None of this stuff has changed. Nothing has changed. And um, mm. I mean, at, at the risk of sounding overly cynical, Nothing is likely to change. Uh, there's going to be. I generally agree, actually. Like as much as much as I want to be educating and helping, kind of expose some of this stuff. I generally agree with Patrick here that, uh, yeah. I mean, we've seen like I, Mossack Fonseca played their role when they needed to. They got exposed. Yeah. Now they're gone or whatever. I, they're not gone. I, they still exist, I think, or in some form. Yeah. 
some way or another, but like 10 other offshore and, um, in, you know, like incorporation, um, entities or whatever firms took their place. It doesn't matter. Like you're not going to stomp this out completely. Right. I think the biggest irony was that, um, the, the Panama papers, things like billion dollar whale, all of these things have actually acted as more like manuals as to, to people, like how-to manuals as to how to get this thing done. So that there were people I know who didn't know how to do these things and they read these books and like, oh, so that's how you do it. And then they, they, they do the exact thing that... I mean, you have seen sort of differential enforcement where the U.S. government, a handful of other governments, care very strongly about North Korea, yeah. Venezuela, mm -hmm. Russian sanctions as a recent thing. And they, they really care very, very strongly about that, right? If you're laundering that money or whatever, you're, you're, you're done. But if you're not, they really don't bother most of the time. I mean, there's the drug smuggling, criminal, people smuggling type, whatever stuff. But the, the, the enforcement is really, really, really harsh at this end and then really, really soft down here. And they've not really cared. To some extent, that's a policy choice that yeah. I guess the voters, politicians, whatever, made. Well, I mean, okay. and this is something we talk about all the time. Look, the, the, you have a finite number of resources at the DOJ. So if, if um, the Senate or the Congress tells you, mm -hmm. hey, look, this month... Our, our, um, um, you know, our, the, the bank that we're going to beat the most is the one drugs. So just crack down all the, the drug yeah. laundry. So then, then there'll be a whole bunch of enforcement issues. Next month, maybe it'll be crypto guys. The next month, maybe it'll be human trafficking, smuggling. But, but you have to pick. You can't, you can't have like, yeah. we're going to go after everywhere, you know, everybody everywhere all at once. Yeah. It, it's just not. Yeah. Yeah, it's not feasible. Well, so, yeah. Well, and on the note of the... Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers and eventually the Pandora Papers and their effect. When I was rereading, one of Jonathan's articles was talking about one of the trusts that TrueUSD started using. And in the advertising for that trust, it said, um, due to new international disclosure requirements, Switzerland, the Bahamas, and the British Virgin Islands no longer offer the privacies that historically attracted international wealth. However... Nevada is exempt from these new international disclosure <laughs> agreements, providing a level of privacy that's increasingly rare. So we we, we onshored some of the uh, tax evasion. Is, is that something, maybe? <laughs> that passage really tells you a lot because so they're talking about how it's uh, those countries participate in CRS. The U.S. Yeah. isn't part of CRS, whatever. That tells you that the people they're appealing to are afraid of governments other than the United States government. Well, that kind of tells you who they are, because there aren't that many countries that have capital controls that aren't somewhat U.S. affiliate. Uh, come on, the, the list is now narrowed down to, what, three or four places. It must be those people they're looking for. And, of course, the irony is that if it turns out the U.S. government cares, no matter what the law is, trust providers in Nevada will comply with the yeah. FBI. It's just laughable that you, oh, it's kept secret from everyone including the local police? Like, come on, that, that's insane. Uh, so, yeah, that, that screwed them in the end, clearly. Uh, which I guess they deserve, because you read that and think, come on, anybody signing up for this one, good luck. That'd be like oh. advertising your primary financial product is meant to be used to evade capital controls. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it does have a bit of that same brazenness. Yeah. For the low, low price, you get um, capital, capital evasion... AML, no AML, no KYC. Well, there, there were actually exchanges that, that used to advertise yeah. that. So there you go. Te tether themselves well, back. In one, yeah, like Tether themselves back in 2015 used to advertise that if you didn't want to go through KYC, but you still wanted to get Tether, if you sent them Bitcoin, they would send you Tether and you they wouldn't have to KYC then. 
Like that that's been part of the industry since the very beginning. <laughs> Yes, I think I think that process and then the experience with the BFX token that became the Leo mm -hmm. token and then promising people a dollar that they didn't have and then being able to pay it back out of earnings, right? Those two things taught a lot of people a lot of lessons that led to this. Right? So you're, if you're confident you're going to earn enough money to make it up quickly and you have a little bit of an ability to close the shutters, running slightly unbacked stuff is fine and you're going to keep going. Now, if it grows exponentially, when you get up to having a $100 billion balance sheet, you're screwed because the gaps are now too big. But that, in retrospect, of course, the story is quite simple and makes a lot of sense. This is, this is the way it always goes. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think to go back to that, it's, it's that this has always, always been happening, but in the shadows. So, you know, mm. the whole offshore banking system, you know, evasion of capital controls and stuff like that, it's always been happening in the shadows. But when you start taking out, like, buying stadiums and crap, I mean, it's too much in your face and it embarrasses politicians and it looks, it's just a bad look if your politicians go like, yeah, yeah, we know all this stuff has been going on for the longest time behind the scenes. Uh, oh, they've got a stadium now? Oh, okay. Uh, you know. And some of this future of finance stuff, I can confirm, has pissed off a lot of senior finance people whose attitude was, we spent a tremendous amount of money on compliance dealing with stuff. So the one MDB thing had implications all over the world and lots of people had to spend a lot of money fixing stuff yeah. from that. And then you, these people are doing what? And they don't have to pay for a huh? And whatever you think of how lobbying works in a lot of the world, taking on the financial services lobby so brazenly was always going to end badly for you. And I just found it amusing that they, like, we found an end run around your AML laws. Okay, I keep, good luck. I keep thinking about our episode with um, our friend Rob Green, um, who specifically pointed out that, like, yeah, you – it's fine if you want to take on the entire financial system and change it, but like, then be prepared to have the entire They're financial system push back <laughs> against you. Like, this is clearly what is going to happen. Um, I, you're you're bringing up clearly. I, I I we don't I I yeah. Who cares if we mention them by name? You're you're talking about stadiums. You're clearly talking about like FTX, let's say, um, well, and SBF. The I, other I, fun example there yeah, is okay, Tara. Is a Ponzi scheme sponsoring the club for the baseball team in DC, which is a remarkably brazen move to get like your name in front of people. Because uh, yeah, Tara, well they can't they can't get rid of it. They can't get they rid of it front. because they paid in cash. Yeah, they paid. In <laughs> they paid in cash up front yeah, yeah, yeah. for like a five or ten year contract. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, outside even of American sports, so this stuff is all over Formula mm -hmm. One. Football, you know, this is this is. Well, I wouldn't hold Formula One to this super high, but I mean, they, they had tobacco commercials right up to the very end. They so, lost. I mean, well, so not that there's anything wrong with that or not. Yeah. But 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 we're talking about FTX. We're talking about these stadium yeah. In, yeah, like yeah, sponsorships yeah, yeah. or whatever. But but I think you're you're actually bringing up a point that I'm like, what about Binance? What about these other massive like I, even OKX? I um recently I was on Twitter and an OKX promotion like ad came up. And it was just this this woman on TikTok saying like, I bought ten dollars worth of um, cryptocurrency and just put it in this AI like I don't know what they're pretending they're doing there, but like I put ten dollars in an AI thing and it went from ten dollars to fifteen dollars in a week, and I'm like, well, this is like insanely illegal. Wait, Whatever you're this offering was, here. Is wait, 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 Cass, this was from the OKX account. This yes, is just it, a was thing. it was promoted. It was promoted from the OKX account. Anyway, uh, but my point being that we're talking about the most brazen, right? We're talking about yeah. FTX. We're talking about whatever. But like 
Binance and OKX and these other exchanges that continue to exist right now, they yeah. also rely heavily on this retail um, yeah. trading and just like constantly bringing these people in. What happens to these guys, right? Like you, we're we're talking about SBF like doing brazen illegal stuff. Maybe maybe Binance is I, giving them the benefit of the doubt, not doing the exact same stuff as Sam Bankman Fried. But like, what what happens then, right? Like, what what is next for these guys? What are, what are well, you guys I mean, expecting? We've seen a lot of the on ramp off ramp stuff get cut. Right? I mean, the prime trust thing is kind of the last, other than the Coinbase Circle USDC complex. That's the last kind of retail accessible, vaguely retail accessible um, on-ramp, except for whatever Binance US, which clearly is experiencing difficulties on-ramping and off-ramping. You know, the, the way you get rid of the infection is you push the thing back offshore, and then if it gets hard enough for people to get their money in and out, it'll just sort of naturally die a bit. There are probably criminal charges against some of these folks pending for various bad activities. I mean, the amount of money laundering indictments that have already been handed down make it clear that that's going to continue and that will shut down some of these businesses. You lose your money in a couple of money laundering seizures and you have to go back to using a ridiculous VPN and wire money to some crazy place. The number of people who are interested in participating in that is pretty low no matter how many TV commercials you run. And that'll just recede. This is probably going to be... Look, there have been offshore illegal casinos as long as the internet's been around. This is not new. That's not going away. I don't think that should go away. Whatever. Like, people want to gamble on sports in countries where it's illegal or whatever it is. That's going to continue. Uh, you know, fine. So, I mean... If they, sorry, they'll, they'll push it back yeah, offshore. The, Stuff will get smaller. Things will vanish. Yeah. And that's kind of going to be the end of that. It's going to be difficult to get licenses onshore to do anything in touch retail where there's meaningful leverage. And that's that. Like, the stock market's a pretty dangerous place. It should be no more or less dangerous than that. I mean, and to that point, like, we look at things often from an American perspective. Um, so we look at everything as onshore being the U.S. and stuff like that. But I can tell you for a fact that out in this neck of the woods where we happen to be right now um, is that, you know, a lot of the countries, you know, are neighboring this place do not have access, most people do not have access to dollars. In Singapore, it's no big deal. You can have a dollar bank account, not a big deal. So a lot of these guys, um, they're low-level programmers, developers, and stuff like that. They need to get paid. Um, tons of them use uh, BUSD until our work, <laughs> but until fairly recently. And again, we, all we did was tell the truth. So, um, you know, <laughs> they were using BUSD as like a local currency and they were using their Binance accounts as like a bank account because the Binance account acted as a bank account which you use to pay other people and you also get to gamble, you know, which is great. I mean, it's like a, like a twofer. So that's what they were doing. <laughs> they still continue to do that. Um, some of them use the true dollars. Some of them use uh, whatever it is uh, that they're using. And I think in a lot of these emerging markets, so to, to your question, Cass, um, like in Africa, in, in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, where where there are still people doing this, um, information doesn't necessarily flow as quickly. They're not definitely not watching C-SPAN. Well, not that anybody should, but, um, you know, <laughs> they're not clued in to the news tickers. So I wouldn't be surprised, and I haven't checked this for a fact, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were still people in Vietnam who didn't know that BUSD really isn't a thing anymore. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, yeah. Sure. I'm, I'm sure. pretty sure that there's places that, like, if I want to pay a bunch of people in BUSD, I'm pretty sure somebody would still take it off my hands. Yeah. Um, so they don't really care so much about the off-ramp because they never had an off-ramp yeah. anyway. 
you know, mm -hmm. they, they would take the equivalent in, 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 in dong or in, um, uh, you know, pesos, pesos or whatever, yeah. whatever that, okay. that happened to be uh, available at the time. So there, there is a convincing argument to be made that a lot of this infrastructure does provide a cheaper or at least competitive price way of running some of this offshore financing stuff that's kind of okay, right? So you have to spend money on mining, whatever. You have to spend money on offshore bank account branches and lawyers and accountants and, you know, fancy looking waiting rooms and whatnot. I can believe that this thing can be run at a, at a price level that's competitive and provides an alternative version of that forever. It'll just be less in your face and you're not going to have people raising money claiming a TAM of $100 trillion because you can buy a banana. Like that, that stuff's done and it should never have been there in the first place. Uh, and represented, I think, a misunderstanding of a lot of tech people who were trying to project tech concepts into finance that just scale differently. Right? If you look at the amount of payments that go through a bank in a given day, the number is mind-boggling. But, of course, the fee that's charged is, you know, yep. 0. 0.000 because it doesn't work that way, right? Because the marginal cost is, is tiny. Uh, yeah. So that's, I think that's the vision for where this is going. I've been saying this would get offshored for a long time, yep. and you're now watching a pretty blunt offshoring where the policeman just beats them back over the border. Yeah. Yeah. Cass, do you have any more questions? No, I mean, I think that, um, I think that rounds it out. Uh, Jonathan, Patrick, I, if you have anything else you'd like to add or that you think is pertinent, please feel free to uh, throw it in right now. Otherwise, you know, um, yeah, we'll, we'll call it. I mean, I guess I'd just say quickly, I think one of the most amusing things to watch here is intelligent people who are just not able to recognize what their eyes are showing them directly in front of them. And I found it to be a fascinating psychology exercise where you can see this, where people who really don't know what the... Finance has very specific words, and lots of people who have no clue what the words mean glom onto some random meaning from Twitter, and then just it's defective thought process forever. And I've learned a lot about human psychology, because in real markets you deal with adults, and it's been great. <laughs> I mean that somewhat kindly. I mean, people have suffered, but like you kind of deserve it. I don't know what to tell you. This is the way we improve as a society. No, I mean, I think I think it's fair. Yeah, these are I mean, these are immature markets and immature people. Um, so so, yeah. Um, keep in mind that obvious obviously Cascoin is unaffected by the prime trust uh, issues. Um, <laughs> I love we're not, that. We're not too concerned with this. Obviously, we have many, many, many other on and off ramps for fiat currency. So don't be concerned, cast coin holders. We can, I still own the Four Arrows Capital name here, so I guess we can invest in some cast coin. <laughs> Perfect.